Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Today we get to hear a lecture that was delivered at Beeson Divinity School back in 2010 by Professor M. Daniel Carroll, Danny Carroll. He's Distinguished Professor of Old Testament at Denver Seminary. And he's speaking on a topic of great currency right now, uh, the question of immigration. Uh, His topic is, how do we begin the immigration conversation? And in this lecture, he's speaking out of his own uh, experience. His mother was Guatemalan. He's lived in this kind of immigrant culture for a long time and has written about this in, in very helpful ways. Uh, one, one of his books um, in particular is called Christians at the Border, Immigration, the Church, and the Bible. So let's listen to our friend Danny Carroll as he speaks at Beeson Divinity School on how do we begin the immigration conversation. Muy buenos días. It's good to be here. Uh, I want us to begin to explore uh, the Bible and what it has to say about immigration. And what we want to do is to begin to think about this topic Christianly. Uh, in the media, and even in our churches, you see, it's, it's a very volatile and uh, emotional topic. And people start uh, yelling at each other across the divide. But I want us to think through how we can do this based on the Bible. And today, and this morning, I want to talk about where we actually begin the debate. Because where you begin the debate determines pretty much where it will go or if it will go at all. Now, there's some common tendencies about the starting point. If you begin the discussion about immigration uh, focusing on the border and legality, the conversation can go something like this. What is it about illegal you don't understand? I mean, they crossed the border, they're not supposed to, uh, therefore they're illegal, end of discussion. Is that the best place to begin wrestling with the topic? Beginning with the line at the Rio Grande and extending to the Pacific. Is that where we begin the discussion? Well, we can. Is it just about laws that may have been broken? Well, yes, we can. But is that the most helpful place? And I would suggest to you that it's not. And I'll show you about that in just a moment. Another thing that happens is we have unfortunate labels that kind of raise the temperature in the room. Uh, we want to say illegal. Now, it may be in a technical sense that's true, but what it can communicate is that uh, these immigrants are kind of this criminal element. But what we learn if you get to know the immigrants is they're just moms and dads and people trying to work and to raise their families and get their kids in school and the kids are growing up as well in a new culture and that's something we'll be talking about later. So maybe what we need to do is use another word, another label, something like undocumented, because the problem is the documents. Maybe we can avoid some of the pejorative things that can come along with the idea of illegal. Here's another one, aliens. See, we use that for like outer space, right? 
sci-fi movies. An alien is something very foreign, and, and, and when you apply it to people, that means they're very different, and they'll never be like one of us. See, when does an alien become a normal person? All these pejorative things that we'll be getting to. You know, why don't they learn English? Well, the, the thought that goes in my head is that you probably don't know any immigrants, otherwise you wouldn't say that, but... Um, we have this idea that, that when you cross the border, you kind of go through this force field, whoop, and all of a sudden you're bilingual. The language learning is a whole other process that we can get into later. See, these are all kind of negative places. You, you begin in a negative uh, situation and circumstances. You begin with the pejorative labels. You begin with already the labeling of, uh, of them as somehow not in their proper place and not here uh, under proper circumstances. So maybe we can change the beginning point and begin to talk about immigrants as people. Let's begin at the beginning. Let's begin at Genesis 1 and 2. Now this will change the whole tone of the conversation. Because, you see, if they are created in the image of God, then there is something different about them than just illegal or alien. Now, I'm uh, at a divinity school, so I know you've studied this, or you will. What does the image of God mean? Well, it kind of depends on your tradition. Uh, if you come from a, a more Reformed tradition, you would take kind of an ontological view that these are things that all people possess, a, a mind, a will, emotions, and a spiritual side to them, and this is what gives them uniqueness, uh, different from other creatures, and that's true. Or you may have more of a Lutheran relational view of the image of God, or you might take a, a more biblical theology approach to the image of God that we are created to rule and subdue the earth. Now if you begin there, from the very beginning then, these people have value. They are fellow uh, humans created in the image of God. And, and, and listen carefully, you see, because we are created to subdue and to rule the earth. In some way, God is giving to humans, you see, uh, the, the task of carrying on his own work. And what that teaches us is not only that immigrants are, are valuable, but they have potential. And now you begin to ask yourself, what can they contribute to the common good? As made in the image of God, their potential is as infinite as ours. And it's not a question of what they take from us, but what they can give us. What can they contribute and invest in their new place precisely because they are made in the image of God? You see how the whole thing changes? Now, we'll be getting to the law in the afternoon. You need to get to law. I mean, you have to legislate this somehow. But where you begin the conversation determines its tone, but also will affect what kind of laws you'll try to put in place and how you would frame those laws and what might be good laws and what might not be such good laws. You see, the starting place is important. The image of God. 
all these different views in theology, and no matter which one you want to take, whether you want to take the Reformed or the Lutheran or the Biblical theology, all of them contribute to a different point of view. People. People on the move. The Bible is full of people on the move. Now, I want to rehearse some Old Testament narratives, and uh, if we have some time at the end, I'll open up for questions. I hope we do. But let's think of some narratives. Let's think of uh, Genesis. Abram. You know the story. He begins in Ur of the Chaldees and has to travel hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to the Promised Land. You see, he begins his whole process, you see, as a migrant, going with his family and his extended family. And once he moves into the Promised Land, he stays a bit migrant. And the only land he will own is a, a piece of land he'll buy to bury his wife. So the father of our faith was a migrant. Now here's another interesting thing. If you begin to read these narratives as migrant or immigrant narratives, Genesis 12, there's a famine in the land and Abram will go to Egypt. He needs to feed his family and himself. Egypt, the breadbasket of the ancient world, the Nile, there's always water. There's always crops and harvest, and Egypt had this continual problem, you see, of, of people wanting to come in, and they built a series of forts, actually, to control the ebb and flow of immigrants into their country. But you know the story, don't you? Uh, this isn't uh, my wife, it's, it's really my sister. <laughs> well, maybe in a technical sense she was. But he thought if, if he said wife, they wouldn't let them in, or maybe they would uh, kill him. But you see, that is what immigrants do at the border, isn't it? You say what you got to say. You do what you got to do to get in. You, gotta, you have to feed your family. And it worked. You know, it worked. I mean, he was even willing to, to risk his wife, but it worked. They discover the ruse, of course, and uh, they send him on his way, and he, he leaves a far wealthier man, and of course he has uh, Hagar to worry about now. But read Abram, Abraham as a series of stories of someone on the move looking for food and water. Here's another one, Joseph. See, Joseph didn't want to move. This was a, a forced migration. They, his brothers were jealous of him. You know the narrative. They sell him. He ends up in Egypt at Potiphar's house, and he works really hard. He's an honest worker. Sounds like an immigrant story, doesn't it? Uh, then, of course, uh, Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and uh, when it comes to deciding who's the guilty one, of course, it's the immigrant. They put him in jail. 
How can they take his word over hers? That won't work. But you know how he comes out and he ends up being second to Pharaoh. And then there's this interesting sequence of events. I mean, he marries an Egyptian woman. He has Egyptian children. He rises through the ranks. You see, he's a great administrator in the kingdom. And then uh, his family begins to show up. They're hungry again. And there's this interesting scene where um, his brothers come in and they don't recognize him. Now, I remember when I was first reading this uh, years ago, people would say, well, you know, so many years had passed, uh, they couldn't recognize him. And I just go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. But then I go, okay, I'm six foot six, my brother is five foot six, I'd recognize that guy anywhere. I mean, yeah, the years would pass and the hair would turn gray. But he's still, you know, my brother. I mean, how can I miss my brother, for goodness sakes? Well, times change, you know, as people get older. Well, not that much. I mean, come on. But you see, when you would move up the Egyptian hierarchy, you would uh, shave your head and your face, and you would paint yourself. That's why they don't recognize him. And he, he follows the ruse, you see, of using an interpreter. But he understands what they're saying, and he goes into the back and he weeps. You see, the immigrant never forgot his mother tongue. He had assimilated. I mean, he'd married the Egyptian woman. He was in the society. He was in the government. He had assimilated, but there was something very deep inside him. He never forgot his mother tongue. And when he dies, of course, he wants his bones to go home. Joseph, the immigrant. Interesting. The Exodus, chapter 1. What is it that scares the Egyptians? There's just too many. See, they want their labor, but they don't want them. Let me repeat that. They want their labor, but they don't want them. And so as the numbers grow, they try to come up with a control. And it's a very cruel one where you kill the little boys, which if you take the long view is a pretty self-defeating kind of policy because even after they put the controls into place, they're still working them. They're still doing the building. You see, they still want their labor, but what they're cutting off, you know, 10, 20 years down the road, is more labor. All they see is what in front of them. There's just too many of these people around here. I mean, they're invading us. I mean, it's a tidal wave. What scares people are the numbers. Let me give you an example. My, our younger son went to a college close to Boston. And Boston's a fascinating place. Um, you know, you, can, you come out of South Station and off to your left you'll see the sign is Chinatown. And, you know, if you want good Chinese food, where do you go? We go to Chinatown. And all the stores have the signs in Chinese. And uh, my Guatemalan aunt was there visiting her daughter. 
a Guatemalan, my cousin and her husband, and the Guatemalan was at Harvard, 4.0 PhD, now teaches at CU Boulder. But anyway, she bought me a Rolex watch for $25. <laughs> it wasn't a real one. And I was a missionary for 15 years, and at one time I was in this missions committee, you know, you know, raising our support. And I forgot to take off my Rolex watch. And I could see the elder of the church kind of looking at my arm. So you start doing this kind of thing, you know, see? <laughs> Chinatown. What a fun place to go. I mean, take pictures, have good food, then you can leave. It's all kind of circumscribed. It's, it's controllable, isn't it? You go into the north end, and this is where they have the Italian section, you know? And that was weird. You're kind of walking down this street, and there's guys sitting in chairs, you know, with wife beaters, and they all kind of talk like this, you know? And it's kind of like the Sopranos. But if you want Italian food, you know, you take a picture with the waiters. The waiters all speak Italian. See, that's, that's controllable. In fact, it's a tourist thing. When the numbers get too big, we get nervous. It's a very human kind of thing. And what's our impulse? To control the numbers. But we still want the labor. You see, we still want them to cut our grass and to put our roof on and to wash our dishes and clean our houses. Well, we, see, we want, the, we want their labor, we just don't want them. It's all very human. This is a great one, Ruth. Let's think about that story. There's a famine in the land, and Naomi and her family migrate to Moab. They're the immigrants at that point. And the sons will marry um, Moabite women. And Ruth is one of them, as you know. She, she has married an immigrant. <laughs> but then, you know, the men die. Naomi's husband and the two sons. And now the woman who married an immigrant is going to become an immigrant. And uh, she says, you know how it goes, your people are my people, and your God my God. But it's interesting if you read the narrative that Naomi says nothing. She doesn't say, well, thank you very much. Boy, I really need some company. There's not a word that comes out of Naomi's mouth. See, why does Ruth go along with her? Well, maybe because she really loves Naomi. That could be very possible. Or maybe, you see, there's other reasons. Because would a Moabite man take her now? I mean, she had no children. And maybe she's sterile. Maybe she's tainted. And maybe she sees this as the best alternative. And she goes with Naomi. And when they get to Bethlehem, if you read the end of chapter 1, the townspeople come out to greet Naomi. Ruth isn't even mentioned. Naomi doesn't say, well, look, uh, here's my daughter-in-law. And wow, what an amazing woman. I and mean, she's come with me. Not a word. 
You see, Ruth is just part of the baggage. I mean, she's not even, you know, in Naomi's mind, really. And Naomi doesn't take any time at all to introduce her, and the women of the town just ignore her. So what you begin to see in the rest of the book is a process of assimilation. But she's got to win several groups of people. On the one hand, she, she needs to win over the townspeople to be accepted. She needs to win over her mother-in-law. And so she goes to the fields. Jewish law. And then if you read the narrative, Boaz comes along. Well, who is that woman? Well, she probably was dressed a bit differently. She must have learned Hebrew because she had a, a, a Hebrew husband and there she was in Israel. So she probably knew Hebrew, but uh, with an accent, I would think. And when they describe her, what do the townspeople say? Well, the Moabite... Not a name, just the Moabite um, woman. Um, she came with Naomi. You know what? She's been working all day. Hasn't hardly taken a break at all. Doesn't that sound like an immigrant worker? I can guarantee you, at least in Denver, I don't know about here in Birmingham, if you go to a housing subdivision that's going up and people are working on Sunday... I guarantee you there are Hispanics or other immigrant groups. See, they'll work hard. It's about survival. And then you have the exchange between her and Boaz, and she's very effusive in her language, almost over the top. But he says to her, now watch the narrative, you see. He says to her, now look, uh, you need to stay with the women. You know, <laughs> Be careful with the guys. You know? uh, so come over here with the women and work. Oh, yes, I will. She goes back home and um, is talking to Naomi, and uh, she explains what has happened. And then um, she says, you know, Boaz told me to work among the men. No, he hadn't. But then Naomi says, well, you need to work among the women. Oh, yes, I'll do that. You see... She has to win her mother-in-law. And now she's following her mother-in-law's advice. Do you see what's happened? Changed the story. Well-meaning, but i got to win her too. Twist the truth a little bit so that she can look like the obedient daughter-in-law. Chapter 3, Naomi says, look, Ruth, uh, this is what you need to do. And uh, when, uh, you know, lie at, at, at Boaz's feet, and when, and when he wakes up, let him do the talking. Oh, yes, I'll, I'll do that. But when he wakes up, she's the one who does all the talking. <laughs> and she tells him what to do. And then at the end, you see... Uh, Boaz wants to send her with some food, and so he gets the food and gives it to her. And then she arrives back home, and she tells Naomi, and then she says, You know, Boaz told me to bring this food for you. Boaz hadn't any, said any such thing at all. You see, she's winning her mother-in-law. Even as she's won Boaz. Chapter 4, you know the exchange, and uh, there's the marriage, and the men, the elders, praise her, comparing her to some 
Israelite women of the past, and then um, the older women of the town. You see, when, when the baby is born, they say, You know, Naomi, she loves you better than seven sons. And Naomi says nothing. But she takes the child. And maybe that was the moment when she finally accepted her Moabite daughter-in-law. And I can guarantee you that her son was going to have a very different life than she had had trying to move in. See, throughout the narrative, even in the chapter 4, she is still Ruth the Moabite. The labels never are taken off. And then you read the last few lines of the narrative, and it's the genealogy of David. You see, is this story about Ruth and Naomi, or is it about David? Well, it's really about both. But this is what you need to see. This story of an insignificant immigrant woman is part of a larger story. Part of a story she had no idea would turn out the way it did. Ruth, the story of assimilation, how hard she works at it. It's not easy. Daniel, this is a good one. Now, Daniel, of course, uh, it's not like they, 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 they want to be where they are, but uh, they're taken captive by the Babylonians, and we begin to see all kinds of uh, cultural imperialism. They take the things from the temple of Yahweh that's been destroyed. They put them in the temple of the gods of Babylon. That would be very symbolic in the ancient world. But then what they do is they begin to teach the young men, the very best and the brightest and the best looking. You see, they, they begin to teach them the ways of the empire. The language, the literature, the mathematics, all the things about the empire. They change their names. So you're, not long, you're no longer Jose, you're Joe. So we're going to change your name. Because you know what? We own you. And they need this interesting thing, you see. Where they say, look... You know, and they end up being the best. And you know, let's keep our food. You know, let's let us kind of do our own diet. Now, um, we kind of you know use this if you're if you're a, a youth guy. I mean, you always go to Daniel one, right? You got to do this in the youth group. Daniel one. Okay, yes, but there's there's a lot going on here because how, what is one of the most identifiable things of a culture? Is it's food? For goodness sakes. If you go into a part of town, you know where you are just by looking at the restaurants. You know you're in a Hispanic part of town, and I don't know Birmingham, I'm just talking about Denver. When you see pupuserias, pupusas are Salvadoranian food. Taquerias. Panaderias. Boo, you're in the Hispanic section of town. Or you might see Vietnamese. The food will tell you. I have it with students where I'll take, uh, every other year I take students to Guatemala. I take them this year, actually. And I tell them, you better like black beans, you know? Did you ever see Forrest Gump and the shrimp? Remember that? 
That's what it's like in Guatemala. You know, we're going to have black beans for breakfast, and we'll have them for lunch, and we'll have them for dinner, and you'll have black bean soup, and black beans and rice, and you'll have uh, frijoles volteados, where they mash them up and it looks like a meatloaf and you slice it. Um, you'll have them uh, whole, you'll have them in a liquidy, you'll have, you know, it's, it's Forrest Gump all over again. And so I tell my student, you better get ready. Oh yes, you know, we love black beans when we go to a Mexican restaurant, you know, we always ask for the black beans. I go, okay. Well, after about three days, Dr. Carroll, can we go to McDonald's, please? And so, oh, I go, I'll do better. Actually, I brought some movies, and uh, we'll have pizza and movie night. Ooh, Dr. Carroll is great. <laughs> right outside of the, the seminary gate in Guatemala City is a Domino's pizza. It's one of these walk-ups. It's not a sit-down. What I don't tell them, of course, is that Domino's in Guatemala has black bean pizza. <laughs> See, have you read Daniel as an immigrant story and how people resent him and his friends? They're a different set of values. They're different religion. They're different food. Loyal worker, though, isn't he? Loyal to very different kings and kingdoms. You get others, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And they're very different, just like immigrant populations. Ezra wants to go home. I mean, he, he, he's, you know, he's this priestly guy and a scribal and all this kind of stuff, and he wants to do it just like the law has it, and he wants to go back and, and, and get back to the turf that he knows and, and organize his life and their life as he knows it and how the law should have it. That's how he thinks. You get some of those. You get someone like Nehemiah. Even though his family, of course, has been um, in exile for a long time, he still wants to know about news from home. He hasn't cut off the umbilical cord totally, and he really is concerned. Then he had this interesting exchange between Nehemiah and the king. The last line of chapter 1 says, And Nehemiah you know, was cupbearer to the king. Well, you have to step back. What does that mean? Well, you, know, you would know all this, uh, seminary students. See, in the ancient world, kings had to worry about assassination, and they would have these bodyguards around them and because people would try to kill them, you see. Or they would try to poison them. So you need a cupbearer because this person would test the food, test the drink. And what is the thing that a king would look at before every meal? Cupper's face. You okay, buddy? I mean, this is, I mean, is we all right with this? You go into chapter 2, and the king says, 
or it says there, and the king saw that my face was sad. Good night. You okay? Please, you're all right. Tell me you're okay. He saw that my face was sad. Alarm bells. And of course you know, he does go home just for a while and he goes back to serve the king. See how different that is than Ezra. And how about Esther? Esther never thinks about going home. Neither does Mordecai. But he must have done pretty well. This Mordecai, her relative, her guardian. Because when Haman would go through the gates, he would get really bothered by this person. Well, if you're sitting at the city gate, that probably means you're a person of some kind of stature. He, maybe uh, he's made some you know, good money and he's uh, risen up uh, the social scale a little bit. You see, if it was kind of this nameless uh, worker from overseas, I mean, Haman wouldn't give him the time of day. What would he care? But see, but this man won't stand when I come through this gate and uh, he's a foreigner. And the solution is, let's just get rid of the whole lot of them. And you know the story. Esther ends up in the palace and Mordecai has to remember, don't you ever forget where you came from? Don't forget who you are. <laughs> Maybe for such a time as this. See, don't ever forget your ethnicity. Don't forget your people. We are different. It's not a first-generation immigrant story. It's, it's one down the line. But a relevant story nonetheless. Let me do this, and then we'll have a few minutes for questions if you have any. I want you to begin to appreciate just how realistic the text is. Isn't it the food, the emotions of it all, the, the worries, the assimilation process? It's also very human. It's so realistic. I was in uh, Paul House's class, and he was talking about the importance of the history of it all. See, this isn't like a story you might know. Do you, do you recognize this story? It begins like this. Marley was dead. There was no doubt about that. Uh, the clerk had signed. And so had Scrooge. And Scrooge's signature was good upon gold. Now mind you, I'm not sure why he uses the metaphor of a dead doornail. I would think that uh, a coffin nail would be more appropriate. But the wisdom's in the metaphor. Marley was dead. As dead as a doornail. Do you know the story? Yes or no? What is it? A Christmas carol. Now if you know Dickens, I was an English major. Paul, I know you liked literature. I was an English major. I love Dickens. I collect Dickens things. I read Dickens. But if you know anything about Dickens, his stories are often very much the same. There's, there's a child, you see, who finds himself or herself in poverty, and oftentimes not because of their fault. It sounds a lot like his childhood, actually. 
Whether you're talking about Oliver Twist or Great Expectations or David Copperfield or A Christmas Carol, the storyline's the same. And his solution to all of this would be a rich benefactor would come alongside and raise this child and the family and the story would end well. And we have these things embedded in our minds and, and even a Christmas carol is something we do every year, don't we? I mean, I collect these. I have the Muppet movie Christmas carol. I have the Mickey Mouse one. I have, you know, the George C. Scott. And I just saw the one at Christmas time. I'm going to get that one too. And it's become part of our language. doesn't Oh, don't be a Scrooge. And we know what that means. Tiny Tim and the Cratchit family. Now, it's interesting also, because if you know Dickens, Dickens was fascinated by the dark side. I mean, if you read The Mystery of Edwin Drood, his last novel, which never was finished, it's about opium dens and things, and Dickens would disguise himself at night and walk the alleyways and byways of London. He was fascinated by the dark side. And if you read his novels, so much happens at night. Now, is A Christmas Carol a true story? Well, yes and no. I mean, it's, it's a reflection of mid-19th century London, 1843. But Scrooge and the Cratchit family, they're characters and nothing more. There was another man writing in London at the same time, actually. Different analysis and different solution. And his name was Karl Marx. But the Christmas, a Christmas carol, you see, is that what we have in the Bible? Just good stories? Is it just a Christmas carol? set against the backdrop of an historical reality, but the characters are all just to entertain us and maybe to teach us. No, there is a realism to this text. These are real people here. And that leads me to the second thing, you see. That's why you begin to read the text, not only for eternal principles, but read it in, a, in an immigrant kind of way and read it as the host culture. Are we the Egyptians? Are we the Babylonians? Are we the Persians? Are we acting just like them? Are we engaging immigrants and the outsiders like this, are we in the text? But what if you're the immigrant? So you're in the text too, aren't you? That's what I tell people, you see. El texto nos acompaña. The text walks with us. That's us in Ruth. That's us crossing the border like Abram to save our families. I tell my students, isn't this good stuff? Oh, the Old Testament's so boring. Good night. No, it's not. <laughs> it's life itself. Now, what I want to do this afternoon is go into Old Testament law. How does Old Testament law 
engage the outsider. We, I've given you some cultural things, but what about law? Because you have to get to legislation. You have to. How does the Old Testament do this? Come back at one. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.